If you have one already, um, get one for the sake of this of this session. If you already have one also and you need one for the session, please um, put it back in the box there by the candle. They cost us $1.50 each to print. Uh, we've just ran another run of about 500 without me having uh, ran it by the vestry first, but I live, by, uh, I live by forgiveness rather than permission, which means my lifespan is limited. If you got that, sorry for the gloom, um, but if you can read it, you will need to be able to read it. If it's too, uh, the gloom is too Stygian, let me know by looking at it and telling me if you can make out. This redaction of this thing is by Alan Jacobs, and Sarah um, Gordon did the lovely little drawings that are inside. And we printed this because um, it's hard to get copies just of the catechism, and we feel very strongly uh, protectively about the original catechism of the Church of England, about which we will hear a little bit. We may not actually move through this in a lot of detail. The assumption is that you already have one, and it's only eight pages long. The brevity of it is one of its greatest recommendations. Um, it's just beautifully worded enough that it's really worth memorizing, and it then becomes a kind of structure for all the opening up of the different aspects of Christian life that are in this thing. So it's a book of answers. Uh, you might leaf through it quickly and get a sense of its structure, but as you do so, I, you might want to ask what would be the question, the question or questions that would be behind the production of a book like this uh, for which the answers here are provided, because you'll see the whole thing is in a dialogic form, Q&A question and answer. It's a little bit arch because the answers are given and you get the sense there are only right, they're not only right, there are truly right and wrong answers for this thing. But um, quickly leave through it and I have a question in hand, in mind, which will take us into this book and also into the period in which it was written, which is the early 16th century, the Reformation period. But we'll look at a few of these uh, images that I have. I don't usually put notes or anything up on the screen. I just give you images and pictures that complement what's going on. Uh, but I will try to flesh out the period for you and the world which would produce a catechism in the first place, uh, but a catechism which we find utterly useful uh, with just a slight modernization of the language sensitively done by uh, Dr. Jacobs. So what, what, why might one might have such a thing as this? What do, on earth would you do with it? Why is it so important to us that we spend hundreds of dollars reprinting it? Uh, because you can't really get it anywhere else. And answer any of those questions. Any, any, any idea, what, what, you, what do you do with this? Like, what's it for? Has the word We're doing catechesis all the time, but what any notion of what a catechism is? Just, I don't, that's a hard question. I admit, I wouldn't want to have to answer it, but I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I, anybody? Fair enough. To drill your kids? To, to drill your kids? That sounds good. <laughs> now, would you use a book to drill your kids? Drill your kids on what would be the question? What are you going to expect them to? give you, what questions will you ask, what answers do you want, what's the substance of the material that you're drilling them on? Like, pardon me? 
God, God sounds good. Uh, anything else? Not that anything else is required if you've said God, but life in the church, that sounds good. God, life, the church, any other questions? What do you think? Pardon me? Spirit? Yeah, that sounds good. I, I mean, I wish, but I think it's there, and I think it's there in our response as well. Um, I am going to take all these things without meaning to curtail the question and answer to say that I think the fundamental question of life to which this book is giving us answers is the question that um, the jailer put to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now this book is being given, and you said to kids correctly, prepared for adolescence, and we'll get to that a little bit. Uh, we'll get, if, well, if we can get our, ever get out of that when we get there, but we, it's, it's for adolescents who have been baptized as children and are about to be confirmed. So it's a chance for those children to prove that they have assimilated, at least verbally, the essence of the Christian faith. What do I need to know? Not just to be saved, but to live a saved life. But they're on their way from conversion to communion. They're on their way from getting in, which they do not remember, to staying in, hopefully. Uh, usually confirmation in the Anglican tradition is an exit ritual. It's a chance for someone to get stamped and then vanish from the church until they come back with their own kids and have to start the whole process over again. We've worked a little bit more to... Uh, take advantage of the richness of the tradition, but you'll see that the first thing that we get in this book, and we'll start with the book, if you want to turn to the page with the waves, which is the first page of the actual catechism text, what happened when you were baptized, and I won't be projecting these things up because I'm a little bit redundant, also allows, disallows me from improvising. The first question is, what is your name? The answer is this one you know. And, the, the, and the, 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 the conversation continues, it goes on. I'll find my own potted account of the notes here. The godparents are asked, and it's godparents and not parents who stand up for the children. And godmothers and godfathers who give the child his or her name at baptism. Any idea why that would be? I don't know if that's the practice now. If when you are about to give birth, a couple, that you immediately find godparents and say, well, we better find a name for this kid quickly. You know, we want to get, not usually something we tend to, any idea why that would be, just why that would be. I, I, I would suggest that one of the reasons was simply the sheer fact of the mortality of both infants at that time, children in general, and adults no less. The godfathers and godmothers played a very important part because they literally took the child if the parents were to die or if they're, for whatever reason they were be able to be, be unable to provide for the child. That was the, just part of the thick cluster of village life. It's not the way the church is anymore, but it's the way that the church was then. And as you read on, you'll see first answer they gave me my name when I was baptized. I was made a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, 
So first, you've got a taste of the structure of this. We're not going to go through it line by line, I promise you. The catechism itself is very organized. It's organized over around three texts which are given, which are the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. A brief explanation of the sacraments at the end, and a brief introduction, which is based on the sacrament of baptism. Which, so we're kind of framed in the sacraments, and then we have these three texts in the middle. And as we go through, you will see in very pithy way, but very list-like way, a series of rather loosely organized, at first sight, requests, promises, actions that should be taken. In other words, if the question is, what must I do to be saved, the project of the catechism is to tell us what to do, what to be saved to do, and what to do to live a saved life. Now, Martin Luther is famous for having taken this notion and run with it in a very existential way. Rather than what must I do to be saved, he said, how do I find a gracious God? In other words, the stakes have gone up, and he's asking himself, where in all this, where in the middle of the church, where in the middle of the communion of saints, do I find some grace in all this? Because what he's saying is that the catechetical structure that he's working under, framed in these texts, framed in this dialogical question of Q&A, what must I do, what must I know in order to do what I have to do, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? And all this is said and been done with, and you're trying to do what you have to do with perfection. You can still find yourself in a very lonely place. This catechism comes on the other side of that Reformation, which was all about grace, and we'll get to grace. But it's using the medieval formularies of the Decalogue, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed as the basic structure of Christian belief. Now, we'll get to that, too. How can that be the structure of Christian belief, you might ask? Well, we'll try to answer that. But our first question is to go back to grace and try to figure out how we will define grace. I go to the dictionary first. You got the dictionary quoted very completely. Thank you, guys. Middle English via Old French from Latin gratia. From gratus, pleasing, thankful, related to grateful. Pleasing, thankful. Grace, something that is full of grace, is pleasing and thankful. We're not going to say whether it's a noun, a verb, or an adverb, or an adjective. It functions in all these ways. Simple elegance or refinement of movement, a very nice definition. I remember Muti talking about Gluck and saying every time you turn the page in a Gluck score, it says grazioso and write to my mind. If I had time, I'd play you the very gracious music that someone like Luke is writing. It has a beautiful line, it's elegant, it's economical, and yet it's not direct. There are no straight lines, everything is curved. Everything is done with a little extra. It's not minimalist, and yet it's down to the bone. It's not utilitarian. It's got a bit of spring in it. The free and unmerited favor of God, fine. That's the standard definition. Nothing wrong with that. And under that, uh, a divinely given talent or blessing. Yeah, fine. 
condition or fact of being favored by someone. God, certainly. And it's very nice. I mean, this we kind of understand. It's not the one that interests me, though. What interests me is number three, which might seem the most oblique, also a grace period, a period officially allowed for payment of a sum due or for compliance with a law or condition, especially an extended period granted as a special favor. Another three days grace. And looking over these, I said, that's the one we're looking at. When the law has asked of you what the law has a right to demand and you can't meet that demand, what does it mean when someone says to you, hey, that paper's due tomorrow, I'll give you another three days. You can't pay the rent, fine, you've got two more weeks. When someone gives you something, as Andrew so beautifully said at, on at today's service, this morning's service, you get something that you absolutely do not deserve. That is grace. Finally, a short prayer of thanks said before or after a meal. A nice way of framing that we're thankful for what we need. A way of, if you like, bringing that out as well. We add that element before we partake of what we need to do of thanks. It takes a little more time. We give it. It's given to God. But it's something a little bit extra in life. Now, Going to jump to one of our great Anglican divines, not just the sort of conundrum or tautology. It, 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 this guy really is someone to look at. He's never heard of the guy, John Henry Blunt, but he is one of these great writers on the prayer book who one encounters when one is in seminary all the time. And he is saying grace is a faithful certainty, respecting God's justice, mercy, and grace. Rather, he's writing about the Anglican Church generally mingled with a loving habit of charitable doubt, respecting the individual sins of Christians pervades the whole of the prayer book. So let me back up. He's looking at the Anglican prayer book. And he's saying these two characteristics are there. Faithful certainty regarding God's justice, mercy, and grace. We say we're absolutely sure of that. And as far as the sins of Christians, we express a charitable doubt. In other words, the standard Anglican approach to the sins of individual Christians is not to haul them up in front of the church and tell them to confess. May that never be. It's to give them the benefit of the doubt. To say short of outright flagrant uh, offense, to say we're going to assume all is well and we're going to carry on being gracious. So what is a catechism? Kareteo, which is the sound resound or sound in the ears of anyone to teach by oral instruction. An echo, in other words, that's the root word of that, echo, which is uh, a sound that is basically bounced from one person to another. I'm quite intrigued by these images of the neural activity going on here, which are quite irresistibly beautiful, and I'm also fascinated by a, a whole uh, discipline which is to do with, with neurobiology and the effect of the environment on the structuring of our neural pathways. Don't worry, I'm not going to be doing brain surgery on weekends for anyone <laughs> interested. I think you might have better options. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but it's also a heck of a lot better than no knowledge at all. So I'm looking at this firing, this echo, because what is happening with the catechism, 
don't want to dumb it down because I think it's beautifully written. You do expect the answers that are here. When the bishop comes and asks a question, he's not ready for a, some kind of deep uh, theological conversation. He wants to get the answers he's been given. However, also bear in mind that you're doing dealing fundamentally with adolescence here. I'm just going to put this up so I don't run away with the time we have. And I'm going to add to this, again, these beautiful images of all this synaptic activity, uh, another great divine, or not so much divine, writer on the prayer book, Evan Daniel, saying, we need divine grace, not merely in a general way, but to think each right thought and to say each right word and to do each right deed. So grace has somehow gone from being a kind of extra that God gives you when you fulfill all the requirements that are set before you to something you actually need in order to fulfill any requirements whatsoever. I'm just going to skip this so I find it irresistible. It's talking about just the impact, if you like, that we have on one another, that peer groups have, the power of peer groups, if you like. I'm putting it into an adolescent frame the extent to which we are linked in more ways than we imagine just by the physical mirroring of the neurons in our brain and suggesting that adolescence especially is a period in which the power of new groups, new uh, people around you, and the, the necessity of trying to create a sense of what society is are very much at work. In other words, we're giving this little spiel with its questions and answers, it's right and wrong, this is what you need to know, this is what you need to do, but what's going on inside an adolescent, and now they say 12 to 24 is the bracket for adolescence. For those who thought you were halfway through, forget about it, you know, or out of it, no, you're nowhere near. <laughs> that, that it is not just a matter of hormones raging, the fact that's being put aside, but the rebuilding of the brain. You know, it's use it or lose it. And what's going on is a massive amount of pruning on the one hand, and then a process called myelination in which the neural pathways that have been pruned are fortified so that the brain is being uncluttered and yet uh, turbocharged at the same time. It's kind of like what Verizon is supposed to do for you when they say you're going to give you the fastest streaming, right, from the internet. That's what's going on in the brain, and it's um, fairly complex a matter. In the meantime, there is a, a, an awareness, if you like, uh, which is between uh, people of, of, of genders that are uh, attracted to one another, if I can put it that way, in the politically correct language. This is unequivocally male and female, and that's the standard model that we use, with which I'm quite satisfied. However, you see them locked in one another's gaze, and it's suggesting that uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. The color red for me is very important, and I'm going to try to use it uh, with some logic. So this is my overwrought and somewhat criticized model of the human psyche. <laughs> uh, some people find this a little romantic, and, and I, I'm sticking with it. So uh, the top is Plato land. Plato says, if you think the good, you can do the good. In other words, you say to your child, I think you should do this and this and this. It would be to your advantage. The child says, thank you, Father. Now I've got it, and I can guarantee I will deliver on that. Of course, that's exactly how it works. Know the good, do the good. No problem. 
this, but we're saying maybe there's still something else uh, brooding down there. So we're going to look again adolescence. We're going to get one of them coming up right here. Family picture, Henry VIII's family. Who's in the frame? Queen Elizabeth I, who as a somewhat young woman is going to become a very important figure in Anglicanism. We'll get to that. Adolescari to grow to maturity. I'm going to lead us back into time. So we've got some people here. Uh, in the background, people will show up now. I haven't seen some of these things. Some of you have a massive amount of, of airtime given to the tutors and to the adolescent tutors. So someone like Anne Boleyn was someone who basically lived her rather full but short life out before I think she had actually technically been done with adolescence. So these are the kinds of people that this catechism is trying to meet. Moving from childhood to adulthood. Moving fast in this era because you become grown up a lot faster than you like. Although the neuroscientists will say the body still has something to say that culture doesn't do. So we get the catechism originally in 1549 with that book. Then uh, another edition is prepared in 1553. The prayer book is revised in 1552, but the 1552 book is never printed. It has only a theoretical existence. It forms the basis in 1571 for the actual prayer book that is the standard issue, but back then it's not seen. So the catechism itself is altered, taken out of the 49 prayer book, printed on its own, and then revised again in 1604. These are the guys that are responsible for doing it. Well, we don't know. Any one or two or three of these, no one knows, actually wrote Alexander Noel, the Dean of St. Paul's, John Poine or Pone, its spelling is different, the Bishop of Winchester, and Thomas Goodrich, the Bishop of Ely, right? And these are the people that contributed to it. Behind them all, however, is this magisterial figure who you want to get to know well around here. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, through a very interesting period of time until he met his rendezvous with the executioner in the year 1556. And we'll try to sneak in a lot more about him. His text, if you like, Cranmer's life verse is this one. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5.10. This is Cramner's singular insight that God didn't wait for us to figure out what we needed to know and what we needed to do before we got saved. That we were saved by God's changing our heart. And let's be clear, we'll get to that in other places. This is God's work, sovereign, uh, the sovereign work of God. Without our participation, he changes our heart. Cramner and Calvin and all the reformers, including Luther, believe in predestination. Scares the heck out of everybody here in free, free church evangelical land, but that's the way it is. And there are benefits to that, and there are curses. We won't push it, because we won't be giving you guys a polygraph test. But that's the basis. When we were God's enemies, in other words, he changes our heart. He gives us the gift of repentance. We see that what we're doing is wrong. We feel it in our core. We react with some degree of distress and consternation. We turn to him literally saying, what shall we do to be saved? 
and he graciously gives us the faith to receive the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And here's a very ancient prayer which Cranmer believes expresses that gospel as well. Almighty God, who dost make the minds of all faithful men and women to be of one will, we wish, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Actually, I'm going to pull this back so you guys can see. Through Christ our Lord. In other words, they're saying we have to pray for the repentance, the change of heart that we need. But it starts with the heart. It's not a matter of what we know or what we do. It's a change of heart that sets this whole thing into being. And it's love that's the basis for all of it. Okay, he dies at the stake. Mary, who burns him, dies. The nation of England rejoices. And we get Elizabeth I on the throne. And she is the one who inherits the mess in which Protestants and Catholics, if you like, uh, progressives and revisionists, are battling each other to the death with massive amounts of burnings of whole families, burning of adolescent children at the stake before she takes over. People in the Smithfield market complained bitterly, not so much that about the burnings, which were a big distraction, but that the smell of the burnings stayed in their houses for weeks after. Maybe 500 burned by Mary, including whole families. So Elizabeth says, you know, as Andrew beautifully summed up, I think we've had enough of that. I'm going to run the church on different models. I'm a Protestant. I was brought up Protestant, though the word didn't really exist. Evangelical would be her description. And that's how we're going to do it. But we're going to keep everybody together. Catholics will remain. If you want to worship freely, you'll be allowed to do it. If you want to stay in the community, we'll be allowed to do it. We're going to make a liturgy that you can say. If you can say our liturgy with all your heart, that's fine. What you believe is your business. That is so fundamental to the Anglican way, I don't even know where to begin saying it. It's the DNA that often didn't make it in the transition into the new Anglican regime, and yet it's core, but so difficult to nuance it, because as Andrew said, it doesn't mean that nothing matters. This is her famous phrase, I would not open windows into men's souls. In other words, that's your business. If you have a real issue with that, you can start a dissenter's chapel. There'll be a few penalties. You cannot uh, send your kids to Oxford or Cambridge, and you can't vote. But if you're a Baptist or a Roman Catholic, and they're all the same, in her view, you can still, you're not going to, no more burning at the stake. And if you're within our communion, if you can say these texts with conviction when you come to worship, and then don't start making hell for us, if you'll pardon the language, when you're outside of school, then you're good, you're golden. It can go as deep as we can get it to go, but we are going to be a big tent. That is the DNA. So how do you get that? We're going to look at this thing. Looks a bit like a guillotine. No, that is not what it is. <laughs> the next move is the one that all of these people make, and that's that scripture is the first and last authority in the church. Scripture working 
in the community in some way understandable in the 16th century, which we have no idea of how to understand, but also working absolutely directly in the heart of the individual believer. In other words, kind of the Protestant principle that each individual with God's word in their hand Stand before God, and if you're going to stand before God, you can might as well stand before anybody else. And if you can say on the basis of God's word that this is what we ought to be teaching, then we'll have a conversation about it. Now, what's the problem about doing that in, say, the year 1500 or the year 1400? Well, we don't get this contraption, which is a prototype of Gutenberg's first printing press, until around 1440. And before 1440, 1450, 1500, you can say whatever you want about putting the word of God in the hands of the nation. You have no way of doing it. If you knew how many calves had to give up their lives to produce enough skins to make one gospel book, which then had to be written out by hand by some monk in the dead of night in the winter, and which ended up costing probably $100,000 you could well ask, how on earth do we put the word of God into the council of the nation? And I, I want to say, chill out to Protestants everywhere when they get up on their horse and say, either there were no Christians before the printing press or why weren't there? There was no way of doing it. Now, I'm not saying that that de defeat um, was, didn't, well, it's complex. It's more complex than that. But we don't get it until Gutenberg cranks out 1454 B42. We all want a copy of B42, the 42-line uh, Bible, in Latin, of course, that we begin to have the possibility of this material in print being delivered into the hands of a nation who can't read, but we'll get to that. They can't read. Why? Because there's nothing for them to read except maybe the name of the inn sign where they're going at the end of a hard day. I mean, seriously. A lot of stuff happens very fast once movable type happens. What did they do before that? That's important because Cramner, Luther, Calvin are all medieval people. They're not the beginning of the Enlightenment and the mess we're in now. What you do is you have one of these in your neighborhood if you can manage it. This is the Chapel Saint-Chapelle, Palais de la Cité in Paris. Built in seven years, they knocked this thing together between 1238 and 1248, it's a place for the king of France to have a lot of his relics. The crown of thorns was there. That and up, well, there were maybe 300 other crown of thorns around the world, but his was certified because he was the king of France. And um, this wasn't all he did, though. What do you think was on these very pretty windows? Botanical specimens, arabesques and urns from uh, the, the Roman, uh, Roman repertoire of decoration. What's on these windows, do you think? Bible stories, precisely. 1,113 moments, scenes from the Bible are there. There's a book on the, uh, there's an entire 50 foot high wi uh, uh, window on the book of numbers, if you like. Now, don't ask me on the spot to give you, what's the math, 75 noteworthy incidents in the book of numbers. My knowledge of the text is inadequate. Whoever the heck put that window together knew their Bible a heck of a lot better than I do. However, you will notice perhaps a few significant 
absences as we go around the Old and the New Testament. What might not be there? <laughs> what, 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 sorry, what's that? Well, Deuteronomy and Leviticus are, are collapsed, I admit, somewhere. And they're a big, oh, a big omission. Though whether he would have snuck them in or not, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole thing on kings, which are biblical kings, but maybe also royal kings. They're not there. But um, what New Testament books would really push the glazier's art? What New Testament books would be a real challenge for someone doing stained glass, in your estimation? Pardon me? Well, I think the Gospels are there, actually. At the back is the Passion. It's off the screen. At the bottom is the Apocalypse. But which ones? Revelation, I think, believe it or not, is, is in that Apocalypse rose window. Which? Tell me which. The Epistles. The Rome, well, you know, exactly. As, as David Daniels said, the books of Romans and Galatians have never been turned into stained glass. Now, we've a little overcompensated for that absence, but he has a point. With all the beautiful uh, affirmation of the power of narrative that one hears, the simple fact is that you cannot gather justification by faith, as Paul puts it, if you're one of the poor slobs coming into your church. But every church in Christendom was built on this model, okay? So that's the basic Plan. There's just two. Okay, those are two moments of Exodus. Those are, that's the kind of detail that they're doing. That's the final play. You can see the guy cutting the lamb's throat and pouring out the blood, daubing it on the lintel. And there on the other side, the angel with the bloody sword leading the Israelites out. So they're, they're reaching a degree of, of, of engagement with the text in this stuff. All right, so that's fine. And if you're the king of France, you can soak that up. You can probably also read Latin, and you probably have enough money for a handwritten manuscript. In your average English parish, this is what you get. And there are literally thousands of these Norman churches over the entire British landscape. What I'm saying is that if you're doing catechism in this era before Gutenberg, the building itself is your basis for catechism. It's your text, it's your book. And in every one of these little books, little buildings, which are all designed around a similar plan, they would have what they could of that program. On one side, usually New Testament. On the other, Old Testament in terms of the glass windows. Every square inch was painted of these buildings as well. And the pride of place for teaching was a thing called the chancel arch. Hard to see it in this angle. You see the Illery, the uh, the. Um, shadow of it there. What is the chancel arch? It's the arch that separates the nave, which is where everybody sits, from the chancel, which is where the um, religious characters, professionals do their thing. And this area is always smaller back here. There's a vestry where you put on your fancy stuff. And that's where you do the altar is in here, right against the back window. And this thing that separates the two zones looks a little like this. It looks like this now, but it didn't look like that in its day. That's what we see now in your typical English church, right? It's all white. It's all beautiful stone. We get this, well, 
Some of these churches are, pretty, are real duds. I mean, you realize when you go to every one of the 10,000 Norman churches, there's still only about 100 that are really worth looking at. And some of them can be pretty ugly, you know. And they don't care over the periods of time what they just slam in there, whether it goes or not. Quite barbaric in their remodeling approach. However, there's still something noteworthy in all the expenditure effort that went into these things. But we're only seeing half the effort in these beautifully chaste, stone buildings and you look right through to the altar well it was never like that but let's start with this area right here the area above the altar that's the sort of main part of the chancel wall they sometimes have to move the roof around we didn't see it like this this is what it would have looked like in that period now stone and water-based paint are not a marriage made in heaven especially in the northern climates the paint falls off the worst thing that happened to all these things was not the Reformation in which they were whitewashed over because the whitewash did a wonderful job of preserving a lot of this painting. The worst thing happened that was Victorian restorers in the lines of Gilbert Scott in the 1890s who decided they should be touched up with varying degrees with oil. But regardless, this image, which I will decode, it's a bit murky as they all are, was painted on every single there are always exceptions, church in Christendom at this time, certainly in the West, not in the East. That's a whole story. So who do you think that is up in the middle, waving his hands around? Who's that guy? What do you think, looking at him? Jesus, right, right, that's Jesus. Now, what do you think he's doing? Always right. Yeah, <laughs> you're always right. What is he up to? What's, what's he up to? Is he just saying, hi, everybody, welcome? The community is all together. I love it, I love it. No, what's he doing? Jesus is judging. Because Jesus' job is judge. This is not the Father sitting here. We never see him. This is Jesus. And every Sunday when you come into church, you don't sit. You stand around in the nave. You look at the stained glass. You might say your rosary beads. There's a giant screen there which we'll see. And on the other side of the screen are priests saying something in Latin. You don't understand a word, but you wait for a certain point and they ring the bell and they'll lift up the host and everybody goes down on their knees and they say, I've seen my Lord today. I've seen my Lord. Hocus pocus. They say, hocus corpus meum. This is my body. And everybody goes home happy. They've done their bit. That's their education. There's no sermons. They don't understand a word of the text, which are read in Latin anyway. They don't understand. It could be in Chinese. It could be the National Theater of Beijing or something, for all they know. But they've got to be there or else. So they go there. But the one thing they know is the pictures. And the one thing they get to look at is the beauty of the Lord's Supper going on there, the Mass every Sunday. Nobody receives. Understand, only the priests receive communion. Nobody gets to go on the other side of that screen. But you do get to spend hours contemplating this. Stefan Lochner, The Last Judgment, 1435. And this whole movement of medieval piety reaches its peak as we get toward the year 1500. What's he saying? There's the Virgin Mary on one side, and there's John the Baptist on the other, more or less the same. On Mary's side, venite benedicte patris me, come ye blessed of my father. Now, if Jesus is judge, you don't want to spend much time with him, right? The idea of gentle Jesus, and the whole sacred heart stuff came about because of the Reformation, right? 
There was no love of Jesus in the Roman Catholic Church in this period. Only fear, pure fear. He's the judge. You went to Mary if you wanted someone who had a heart, who was going to listen to you. She's saying, come, my blessed of my father. And you can see the blessed down there. Hard to see because it's so much going on. Nice big building. Looks like a church. Surprise, surprise. Over on the other side, a bunch of people with wings flapping around. Chaos. People waving their arms around, looking generally miserable. Dice dite malediti. Depart ye cursed. You know where you're going. So this is the model. You see it outside. If you had a big cathedral, I think that's old toilet, you get that on the west door. When you go in the door, you see that thing over you. The judgment, right? There he is. Nice people, orderly, happy down there in heaven. On the other side, people wriggling around and getting thrown into the mouths of various beasts. The artists had a lot more fun with hell than heaven. There's a great joke by a Lutheran that said, after 10,000 years in heaven, we're going to have to get some money together and get a guided tour of hell because there's so many interesting people down there. Well, we leave that. There, I mean, there's the text actually painted on in, in a, a little church in Oxfordshire. You can see they're rising out of their graves there, trumpets with angels, and then a bunch that are rising up but wishing they could just go back in. So this is the medieval church that is our teacher. And you can see there's a great big screen down the middle. And the whole church would have been painted with this stuff. The stained glass technically reduces the amount of available light by 70 or 80%. The deep reds and blues, so it would have been very dark, very lushly painted, lavishly painted with expensive blue and red pure pigments. As much as they could, it's all gonna fall off the stone, but it's gonna stick to the wood really well. Up on the top, they have this thing called the rood or rood, and it's a little grouping of a crucifix. Once again, Mary on one side, John on the other. Here's a bigger image of it. That You might look straight through that, or you might have a chancel arch in which, and I, this is a little timed thing, in which there is a painting. So that grouping might be slapped right on the chancel, on the chancel wall. And I'm gonna sneak forward. There is a surviving painting. These are all called doom, by the way. It's funny. They could look at the Last Judgment and generically call it the rapture. You know, we're going to heaven. Or, you know, you could look at the other side and say doom. What's that great line that, who is it? It's Scoggs, one of the great theologians, I think at Union Seminary, who said, someone said, how do you define the rapture? And he Wright tells this joke. He said, well, it's when I look out the window and see a bunch of people going up to heaven and I say, well, I'll be damned. You know, well, that, <laughs> that was sort of their, pardon me, I hope there's no children here. That, okay, they call it a doom. But you can, you, you, you can see, you can see the outline of the cross in the middle, and Mary and John there. So what's at the back? Well, they kind of pulled Jesus off to one side and Mary and John on the other side. It's, I'm not sure, but that's how they've done it. So over on this side, a bunch of happy people, St. Peter welcoming them in. Of course, he looks like a bishop. And then on the other side, there he is. Everybody's happy, they're kind of chased. Of course, kings are getting in. Of course, other bishops are getting in, naturally. And on the other side, hell, much more interesting. And there it is, all kinds of fascinating creatures and monsters. Now, if you're so inclined to take any of that seriously, and they are encouraging you to do this, 
because people are facing the possibility of death in the year 1500 all the time, then at some point in your life, which is probably no more than now, these fundamental questions are going to come back to you. What must I do to be saved? And you're going to come and ask somebody. You're going to go to confession, which is the one thing that the priests did. And like everything else the church did, it was dependent on you having the money to say it. Now, they had a wonderful thing called purgatory going there. We won't go into that. It was a great loss to the church because you could earn a lot of money on it. Why? Because this was the basic principle, and we call it the uncertainty principle that ran the Catholic Church. How do you know which side you're on? Come the blessed of my father, depart your cursed. And they're saying, was facere quod in se est. Do what is in you, which in other words is do your best, God will do the rest. What's wrong with that? It sounds very nice. Well, it, not so, because how do you know you've done your best? Well, I don't know. Where do you turn to find out? The church will tell you whether you've done your best. And if you haven't, there's a lot of actions you can do and a lot of money you can pay to make sure that God is going to be pleased with you. You still might have to spend a zillion years in purgatory. So it's all based on a principle of uncertainty. I'm going to race through it because time is running out. Now, we get to the adolescent brain. And to put it short, uncertainty and anything based on fear has a special privilege. The whole fear system in our brain is one of the most robust, elegant, and powerful neural systems in our, in our system. It's how we survive. And adolescence, according to one person I'm reading, is suggesting that as the frontal cortex begins to get a massive bit of pruning and strengthening, which is where you work with rules and you consider, you judge what actions to take. I mean, that's really rough, forgive me, and probably wrong, but the, the, the fear system is very robust when you're an adolescent. So oddly enough, it's a reward system which says you can take risks and get away with it. And the two kind of balance each other out in a very unhelpful way. But anything that's running on fear is working fine. And a lot of the church is in a very adolescent place spiritually. I'll be perfectly frank. And as a pastor, it's very hard not to pull the fear card out. It's irresistible. Everybody falls into it because everybody has fallen short, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's what keeps the church running. Cranmer's trying to make this statement. I probably go a little longer and then I'll, I'll be out of here. Same statement, we were reconciled to God before we did anything. And in Cranmer's commonplace books, a little quote by this guy, Melanchthon, Luther's henchman who says, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You're going to hear that a lot around here. What does that mean? Instead of just back and forth between what do I know and what do I do, and do I know what I've got to do, and did I do what I know I have to do, etc. He's saying the heart is down there, and we're forgetting about it. And not only are we forgetting about it, it's actually the most important thing. The heart is going to tell you what you're going to do. It's going to tell you what you want, what you love, what he said, and what the heart desires, the will will choose, and we'll just bring the mind in later to justify, to rationalize, to say, well, that's why we did it. And we'll find some theological explanation, and that's really not so difficult. So what Cranmer is trying to do, and then I'll let you go through all this, is resolve uncertainty, with a principle of faithful certainty. So, very fast running through. That's a, a church, Anglican church, 1688. The Anglicans didn't get to do churches 
They had to inherit medieval churches and make them work. But a prayer book church got to be built in abundance in the 17th century. The Fire of London was a huge help. This is maybe my favorite, St. Mary Ab Church. We'll just have a quick look through it. Gorgeous thing, you know. It's one big room. They were called auditory churches. The floor is wood. There's walls are plaster. The windows are clear. So you can read your prayer books. And in the ceiling is a beautiful painting. Yes, there is a painting, and then just the words Yahweh, the tetragrammaton on the top. So that's the way it's laid out, auditory church, communion table, one big square, everybody's in it. No separation of the holy, the sacred, and the profane. You're all in one big room. So that's it. What's on this thing here? We're going to look a bit closer. They've taken the paintings away, but they've given you these texts, the Creed, the Decalogue, and the Lord's Prayer. 1604, they add, where is it, the communion table. This comment, the order of the catechism is eminently instructed, is privilege before obligation, faith before duty, grace before both faith and duty. Now, seeing we're running out of time, and I'm over time, where does this happen? You've got all these books, all this duty in here. And I want you to turn to the middle page with the big cross, and then I'll let you go. The rest of this isn't important. The Lord's Prayer and the Grace of God. So we've heard the Creed, which is all about God, and we've heard the Decalogue, which is all about love of neighbor, arguably, and love of God. Catechist says, my young friend, please understand this, that you are not able to do these things with your own strength. In other words, everything I've told you now you're getting all ready to do it. Yes, I'm on it. Forget about it. Like, just forget it. If that's the way you're going to do life, even a Bible in one hand and saying, let me add it, forget it. It doesn't work that way. If you think you can do your own strength or walk in the commandments of God and serve him without his special grace, you're in trouble. Grace is not just an addition. Grace is essential. So you must learn at all times to call for that grace through what? Prayer. Let me hear then so you say the Lord's Prayer. Now if you turn the next page, it's just loaded with, and you can do this in your own time. I counted like eight or ten references to grace. Everything is about grace when we get to the sacraments. It's all about a benevolent God who is more willing to give us the good things we want than we are to ask for them. And it's all about the primary reason, the, the absolutely, the, I know, I know, I'll let you go, the absolute essential nature of prayer. I know I can go on longer, that's, that's what I get to do. It's all about the necessity of prayer. In other words, in a very Pentecostal way, it's saying we need to learn to listen to God. And God has to, that prayer has to be into every decision we make in our life. And the law is only there as a handrail. But prayer is supposed to be the way we get through our daily lives. It's supposed to be more and more um, what makes us what we are. Prayer to a loving God who we can trust, who's going to be more inclined to bless us because he loved us before we ever got our act together than to curse us. In fact, there is no possibility that we will be cursed because we have eternal assurance that our salvation is is, is guaranteed in Jesus. So that's all. You can read the rest of it on your own. Sorry to take up so much time. Fantastic. And we do that in our building with the 10 lights. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.